Chapter Two of Doom Castle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolyn. Doom Castle by Neil Munro. Chapter Two, The Pursuit. Nobody who had acquaintance with Victor de Montaillon would call him coward. He had fought with de Gramont and brought a wound from Dettingen under circumstances to set him up for life in a repute for valour, and half a score of duels were at his credit or discredit in the chronicles of Paris society. And yet, somehow, standing there in an unknown country, beside a brute companion wantonly struck down by a robber's shot, and the wood so still around, and the thundering sea so unfamiliar, he felt vastly uncomfortable, with a touch of more than physical apprehension. If the enemy would only manifest themselves to the eye and ear as well as to the unclassed senses that inform the instinct, it would be much more comfortable. Why did they not appear? Why did they not follow up their assault upon his horse? Why were they lurking in the silence of the thicket, so many of them, and he alone and so obviously at their mercy? The pistols he held provided the answer. "'What a rare delicacy,' said Count Victor, applying himself to the release of his mail from the saddle whereto it was strapped. "'They would not interrupt my regretful tears.' but for the true elan of the trade of robbery give me old cartouche picking pockets on the pont neuf while he loosened the bag with one hand with the other he directed at the thicket one of the pistols that seemed of such wholesome influence then he slung the bag upon his shoulder and encouraged the animal to get upon its legs but vainly for the shot was fatal ah said he regretfully I must sacrifice my bridge and my good comrade. This is an affair. Twice, three times, he placed the pistol at the horse's head, and as often withdrew it, reluctant, a man, as all who knew him wondered at, gentle to womanliness with a brute, though in a cause against men the most bitter and sometimes cruel of opponents. A rustle in the brake at last compelled him. Alas, said he, impatiently with himself, I do no more than I should have done with me in the like case, and he pulled the trigger. Then, having deliberately charged the weapon anew, he moved off in the direction he had been taking when the attack was made. It was still, he knew, some distance to the castle. Half an hour before his rencontre with those broken gentry, now stealing in his rear with the cunning and the bloodthirstiness of their once native wolves and always remember with the possibility of the blunderbuss fraud that he could tell he had for the twentieth time since he left the port of desire taken out the rue de Tignery, written in ludicrous scoto english by hugh bethune one-time secretary to the lord mariscal in exile and read and so on to the water of Leven. The Brewster wife at the Hauf near Loch Lomond mouth keeps a good glass of aqua. Then by Lass, with an eye on the Gregach, 
thereafter a bitock to glencroe and down upon the house of arkinglas a hanoverian rat whom where round the loch head and three miles further the castle of the baron give him my divorce and hopes to challenge him to a bowl when yon comes off which god kens there seems no hurry by that showing the castle of baron lamont must be within half an hour's walk of where he now moved without show of eagerness yet quickly none the less from a danger the more alarming because the extent of it could not be computed in a little the rough path he followed bent parallel with the sea a tide at the making licked ardently upon sand spits strewn with ware and at the forelands overhung by harsh and stunned seaside shrubs the breakers rose tumultuous on the sea there was utter vacancy only a few screaming birds slanted above the wave and the coast curving far before him gave his eye no sign at first of the castle to which he had got the route from monsieur hugh bethune then his vision that had been set for something more imposing for the towers and embrasures of a stately domicile if not for chantilly at least for the equal of the paternal chateau in the meuse valley with multitudinous chimneys and the incense of kind luxuriance hearths suave parks gardens and gravelled walks contracted with dubiety and amazement upon a dismal tower perched upon a promontory revealed against the brown hills and the sombre woods of the farther coast it was scarcely a wonder that his eye had failed at first to find it here were no pomps of lord or baron little luxuriance could prevail behind those eyeless gables there could be no suave pleasance about those walls hanging over the noisy and inhospitable wave no pomp no pleasant amenities the place seemed to jut into the sea defying man's oldest and most bitter enemy its gable ends and one crenellated bastion or turret betraying its sinister relation to its age its whole aspect arrogant and unfriendly essential of war caught suddenly by the vision that swept the fretted curve of the coast it seemed blackly to perpetuate the spirit of the land its silence its solitude and terrors these reflections darted through the mind of count victor as he sped monstrously uncomfortable with the burden of the bag that bobbed on his back not to speak of the indignity of the office it was not the kind of castle he had looked for but a castle in the narrow and squalid meaning of a penniless refugee like bethune it doubtless was the only one apparent on the landscape and therefore too obviously the one he sought very well god is good said count victor who to tell all and leave no shred of misunderstanding was in some regards the frankest of pagans and he must be jogging on for its security but as he hurried the ten broken men who had been fascinated by his too ostentatious fob and the extravagance of his embroidery and inspired furthermore by a natural detestation of any foreign doing a sale apparently bound for the seat of mckellen moore gathered boldness and soon he heard the thicket break again behind him he paused 
turned sharply with the pistols in his hands. Instantly the wood enveloped his phantom foes, a bracken or two nodded, a hazel sapling swung back and forward more freely than the wind accounted for. And at the same time there rose on the afternoon the wail of a wild fowl high upon the hill, answered in a sharp and querulous too responsive note of the same character in the wood before. The gentleman who had twice fought à la barrière felt a nameless new thrill, a shudder of the being, born of antique terrors generations before his arms were quartered with those of Rochefoucauld and Modène. It was becoming all too awkward, this affair. He broke into a more rapid walk, then into a run, with his eyes intent upon the rude, dark keep that held the promontory, now the one object in all the landscape that had to his senses some aspect of human fellowship and sympathy. The Caterans were assured, Dieu du ciel, how they ran, too! Those in advance broke into an appalling hello, the shout of hunters on the heels of quarry. High above the voice of the breakers it sounded savage and alarming in the ears of Count Victor, and he fairly took to flight, the valise bobbing more ludicrously than ever on his back. It was like the man that, in spite of dreads not to be concealed from himself, he should be seized as he sped, with a notion of the grotesque figure he must present, carrying that improper burden. He must even laugh when he thought of his austere, punctilious maternal aunt, the Baronne du Chenier, and fancied her horror and disgust could she behold her nephew disgracing the Duchenier blood by carrying his own baggage and outraging several centuries of devilishly fine history by running, positively running, from ill-armed footpaths who had never worn breeches. She would frown, her bosom would swell till her bodice would appear to crackle at the armpits, the several hairs on her upper lip would bristle all the worse against her purpling face as she cried it was the little lyon shopkeeper in his mother's grandfather that was in his craven legs doubt it who will an imminent danger will not wholly dispel the sense of humour and montaillon as he ran before the footpads laughed softly at the baronne but a short knife with a black hilt hissed past his right ear and buried three-fourths of its length in the grass and so abruptly spoiled the comedy this was ridiculous he stopped suddenly turned him round about in a passion and fired one of the pistols at an unfortunate robber too late to duck among the bracken and the marvel was that the bullet found its home, for the aim was uncertain, and the shot meant more for an emphatic protest than for attack. The glad's cry rose once more, rose higher on the hill, echoed far off, and was twice repeated near ahead, with a drooping melancholy cadence. Gaunt forms grew up straight among the undergrowth of trees, indifferent to the other pistol and ran back or over to where the wounded comrade lay 
"'Heaven's thunder!' cried Count Victor. "'I wish I had aimed more carefully.' He was appalled at the apparent tragedy of his act. A suicidal regret and curiosity kept him standing where he fired, with the pistol still smoking in his hand, till there came from the men clustered round the body in the brake a loud simultaneous wail unfamiliar to his ear, but unmistakable in its import. He turned and ran wildly for the tower that had no aspect of sanctuary in it, his heart drummed noisily at his breast, his mouth parched and gaped. Upon his lips in a little dropped water he tasted the salt of his sweating body. And then he knew weariness, great weariness, that plucked at the sinews behind his knees and felt sore along the hips and back, the result of his days of hard riding come suddenly to the surface. Truly he was not happy. But if he ran wearily, he ran well, better at least than his pursuers, who had their own reasons for taking it more leisurely, and in a while there was neither sight nor sound of the enemy. He was beginning to get some satisfaction from this, when, turning a bend on the path within two hundred yards of the castle, behold an unmistakable enemy barred his way. An ugly, hoggish, obese man, with bare legs most grotesquely like pillars of granite, and a protuberant paunch, but the devil must have been in his legs to carry him more swiftly than thoroughbred limbs had borne Count Victor. He stood sneering in the path, turning up the right sleeve of a soiled and ragged saffron shirt with his left hand, the right being engaged most ominously with the sword of a fashion that might well convince the Frenchman he had some new methods of fence to encounter in a few minutes. High and low looked Count Victor as he slacked his pace, seeking for some way out of this sack, releasing as he did so the small sword from the entanglement of his skirts, feeling the Mechlin ducedly in his way. As he approached closer to the man bearing his path, he relapsed into a walk and opened a parley in English that, except for the slightest of accents, had nothing in it of France, where he had long been the comrade of compatriots to this preposterous savage with the manners of medieval Provence, when footpaths lived upon Damoiselle Picouret. "'My good fellow,' said he airily, as one might open with a lackey, "'I protest I am in a hurry, for my presence makes itself much desired elsewhere. I cannot comprehend why in heaven's name so large a regiment of you should turn out to one unfortunate traveller. The fat man fondled the brawn of his sword-arm, and seemed to gloat upon the situation. "'Come, come,' said Count Victor, affecting a cheerfulness. "'My waistcoat would scarcely adorn a man of your inches, and as for my pantaloons—' He looked at the ragged kilt. "'As for my pantaloons—' "'Now on one's honour, would you care for them? They are so essentially a matter of custom.' He would have bantered on in this strain up to the very nose of the enemy, but the man in his path was utterly unresponsive to his humour. 
In truth, he did not understand a word of the nobleman's pleasantry. He uttered something like a war-cry, threw his bonnet off a head as bald as an egg, and smote out vigorously with his broadsword. Count Victor fired the pistol a bout portant with deliberation. The flint, in the familiar irony of fate, missed fire, and there was nothing more to do with the treacherous weapon but to throw it in the face of the highlander. It struck full, the trigger-guard gashed the jaw, and the metal butt spoiled the sight of an eye. This accounts for the mace and the dechenier quartering, thought the count whimsically. It is obviously the weapon of the family. And he drew the rapier forth. A favourite, a familiar arm, as the carriage of his head made clear at any time, he knew to use it with the instinct of the eyelash, but it seemed absurdly inadequate against the broad long weapon of his opponent, who had augmented his attack with a dirk drawn in the left hand, and sought lustily to bring death to his opponent by point as well as edge. A light dress rapier obviously must do its business quickly if it was not to suffer from the flashing blow of the claymore, and yet Count Victor did not wish to increase the evil impression of his first visit to this country by a second homicide, even in self-defence. He measured the paunched rascal with a rapid eye, and with a flick at the left wrist disarmed him of his poignard. Furiously, the gale trashed with the sword, closing up too far on his opponent. Count Victor broke ground, beat an appeal that confused his adversary, lunged, and skewered him through the thick of the active arm. The Highlander dropped his weapon, and bawled lamentably as he tried to staunch the copious blood, and, save from his further interference, Count Victor took to his heels again. Where the encounter with the obese and now discomfited Gale took place was within a hundred yards of the castle, whose basement and approach were concealed by a growth of stunted wind. Towards the castle Count Victor rushed, still hearing the shouts in the woods behind him, and as he seemed, in spite of his burden, to be gaining ground upon his pursuers, he was elate at the prospect of escape. In his gladness he threw a taunting cry behind, a hunter's greenwood challenge. And then he came upon the edge of the sea. The sea! Pest! That he should never have thought of that! There was the castle, truly, beetling against the breakers, very cold, very arrogant upon its barren promontory. He was not twenty paces from its walls, and yet it might as well have been a league away, for he was cut off from it by a natural moat of sea-water that swept about it in yeastly little waves. It rode like a ship, oddly independent of aspect, self-contained, inviolable, eternally apart, forever by nature indifferent to the mainland, where a Montelion was vulgarly quarrelling with a sans-culotte. For a moment or two he stood bewildered. There was no drawbridge to this eccentric moat. There was, on this side of the rock at least, not so little as a boat. 
if Lamont ever held intercourse with the adjacent isle of Scotland, he must seemingly swim. Very well, the Count de Montaillon, guilty of many outrages against his ancestry to-day, must swim too if that were called for, and it looked as if that were the only alternative. Vainly he called and whistled, no answer came from the castle that he might have thought a deserted ruin if a column of smoke did not rise from some of its chimneys it was his one stroke of good fortune that for some reason the pursuit was no longer apparent the dim woods behind seemed to have swallowed up sight and sound of the broken men who at fault were following up their quarry to the castle of MacKellan Moor instead of to that of Baron Lamont. He had therefore time to prepare himself for his next step. He sat on the shore and took off his elegant long boots, the quite charming silk stockings so unlike travel in the wilds, then looked dubiously at his limbs and at the castle. No, manifestly, an approach so frank was not to be thought of, and he compromised by unbuttoning the foot of his pantaloons and turning them over his knees. In any case, if one had to swim over that yeasty and alarming barrier, his clothing must get wet. A porte basse passant courbé, he would wade as far as he could, and if he must, swim the rest with the boots and the valise and the stockings and the skirts of his coat tucked high in his arms the count waded into the tide that chilled deliciously after the heat of his flight but it was ridiculous it was the most condemnable folly his face burned with shame as he found himself half-way over the channel and the waves no higher than his ankles it was to walk through a few inches of water that he had nearly stripped to nature. And a woman was laughing at him. Morbleu, decidedly a woman was laughing, a young woman he could wager, with a monstrously musical laugh, by St. Denis, and witnessing, though he could not see her even had he wished, this farce from an upper window of the tower, he stood for a moment irresolute, half inclined to retreat from the ridicule that never failed to affect him more unpleasantly than danger the most dire. His face and neck flamed. He forgot all about the full-bosomed baronne, or remembered her only to agree that nobility demanded some dignity, even in fleeing from an enemy. But the shouts of the pursuers that had died away in the distance grew again in the neighbourhood, and he pocketed his diffidence and resumed his boots, then sought the entrance to a dwelling that had no hospitable portal to the shore. Close at hand the edifice gained in austerity and dignity, while it lost the last of its scanty air of hospitality. Its walls were of a rough rubble of granite and windstone, grown upon at the upper stories with grasses and weeds, wafted upon the ledges by the winds that blow indifferent bringing the green messages of peace from god a fortalice dark and square built flanked to the southern corner by a round turret lit by few windows and these but tiny and suspicious 
it was as scots and arrogant as the thistle that had pricked count victor's feet when first he set foot upon this islet a low wall surrounded a patch of garden ground to the rear one corner of it grotesquely adorned with the bower all bedraggled with rains yet with the red berry of the dog rouse gleaming in the rusty leafage like grapes of fire he passed through the little garden and up to the door its arch ponderous deep-moulded hung a scowling eyebrow over the black and studded oak and over all was an escutcheon with the blazon of hans fesswise and castles embattled and the legend doom man behold the end of all be not wiser than the priest hope in god he stood on tiptoe to read them more easily the time-blurred characters his baggage at his feet his fingers pressed against the door some of the words he could not decipher nor comprehend but the first was plain to his understanding doom said he airily and half aloud doom quelle felicite it is an omen then he rapped lightly on the oak with the pommel of his sword End of chapter two